Hello and welcome once again to the Silver Linings Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Stevens, back with another episode for you today. One that is very near and dear to my heart, as you'll see in just a minute. I don't want to give anything away just yet, but this story was actually another part of the original inspiration for starting this entire podcast. When things like this happen, it's usually the ones that hit closer to home that end up motivating us into action. So hopefully as you continue to listen to this and future episodes, you'll find the ways to look for your own silver linings and start seeing the good that can come from almost anything, even if it is unexpected. I've had a lot of questions about this particular story over the past few months, and I will let you see why. So let's get to it. Okay, hi again, everybody. We are here with another really special guest for you today on the podcast. Uh, Before I get into setting up any of the background and specifics of it, I'm going to start off right off the bat by giving him the same three questions, and that will help uh, give a little more background into this. So I'm going to ask you the same three questions I ask everybody to start. This is our quick-hitting version of your story, so everyone is on the same page. Who are you, what do you do, and what happened to you? I'm Gary Stevens. I'm a retired from my career as a ski rep selling alpine ski equipment, with mostly with Nordica. And I'm a father of five, a grandfather of ten, and uh, I had a rather serious mountain bike crash on the Slick Rock of Moab, Utah, where I lost an eye and had some serious brain trauma. Okay, so you may have guessed uh, by the name, Gary Stevens, our special guest today is my father. This is my dad. Um, and he obviously went through something uh, that most people wouldn't, uh, losing an eye through a bike accident. Um, he's been willing and gracious enough to come tell this story a little bit and and share that with us. But I also misled you again as well because he's not alone here. We actually have another special guest with us, and that is his wife and my mom. Maggie Stevens is here with us. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for letting me tag along. Yeah, well, we'll explain a little bit why we've got both of them here. There's, There will be reasons for it. But after you heard my dad share his story about, uh, or share his quick synopsis of what happened, our family has adopted a new saying that you've all heard before but has given us new meaning is, it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye. <laughs> we laugh about it and... Uh, because we've been through it now. My dad here has been through this. And I want to set the stage and apologize in advance because, and I hope this doesn't come across through the podcast today, that saying actually has taken on a real new meaning for us because we tend to laugh a lot and we tend to find joy and laughter when we go through tough things. So when you hear us tell the story today and as we talk a little bit back and forth, if we are to laugh at very serious things, it's not because we don't feel the emotion about this. But for us, that is how we cope. And that is something very unique and that my two parents here with us have given me a a very unique perspective, I think, and a special ability to see the positive in things. So I actually thank both of you for giving me that. Um, The other reason I I set the stage for that is because my dad here, and he'll be the first to admit it, is the crier in the family. He is the emotional one. Um, And now, because of this accident, for whatever reason, he has become even more so. The tears, the floodgates have opened, and he cries more. So we find laughter and joy in that. Um, And even as I say this, I can see tears welling up a little bit in him. Are you doing okay as we start? I'm doing okay, yes. Okay, good. Why don't we start and just get a little bit more so that everybody knows. I obviously know a little bit more of your background and your story. But let's talk about kind of how we got to where you were and how this accident happened. Um... But that's first to set the stage so people understand. You're in your mid-60s, and you're a pretty active person. What are, Tell us some of the stuff you guys both like to do as a couple. Well, we like to ski. We like to walk and, uh, you know, activities that keep us going and moving. And We like ra- to bike ride. Bike ride, yeah. Road and not so much mountain biking anymore. <laughs> Maybe before. This is something I think that was important because... Maybe not everybody in their mid-60s stays as active as you two do. So this wasn't also an accident where you're inexperienced or you didn't know what you're doing. This was something that just happened. Um, but let's let's get into that as well. So you were uh, in your church, in the Mormon church. Uh, you were called to be a leader 
uh, as of over the Young Men Organization. Is that correct? Yes, I was called the Young Men's Leader, and I had oh eight to twelve boys under my jurisdiction, and led them on activities and Sunday lessons and just a variety of things that we do. So how? What? Tell us how you got down to Moab. What was this you were doing down there with them? Well, we had decided to usually we have an annual high adventure trip, and we decided this year when they had their UEA school break that we would go down to Moab, Utah and, and do a number of things. We spent the first day hiking in Arches Park and we hiked to a number of different arches. The second day we spent rappelling in some canyons and we rappelled about, oh it was 15 or 16 different rappels and the, the biggest one being a 200 foot rappel. So we had two great days and then the biking day was reserved for the last or the third day. And first thing in the morning I was one of the first ones out there and and this all happened right before the day even got going. So you guys were out doing a bunch of stuff, camping, uh, rappelling, rock climbing, all this fun stuff. There's a lot going on. So then you um, get out on this bike ride. You guys were just starting. You, yes. You've ridden your bike a lot, as you guys say. You go out and ride them here at home. So you felt comfortable doing this. I, I did. The, the one thing I was not really experienced at was riding on slick rock. That was a, a bit of a different experience because it wasn't like being on dirt or even being on pavement. It was just unique because of the terrain of the rock. And I realized as I got going that my, my both my brake cables were released, and so I didn't have any brakes at all. But I had just gotten going, and I, was, I could see a little spot in front of me about 10 feet. So I kind of aimed for that spot and figured when I hit that with the front tire... I would either roll to the side or jump off or do something, but the minute I hit it, I went up over the handlebars and landed right on my face onto that slick rock, which doesn't budge at all. It just hit hard right on my face. Mm-hmm. Do you remember all of that now? Has this come back to you? Is this something that now you've kind of pieced together from the stories other people have told you? Or? I've, I've, I remember the feeling of, of squeezing the handbrakes and not getting any slowing of the bike. I remember that vividly. I don't really, I remember hitting it. I don't remember going over the handlebars, but I know I did because of what people told me. I remember laying there on the ground thinking, oh, I'll be okay in just a second. Let me just rest here. And then I remember hearing voices. I didn't feel any pain yet. I think I was either um, just nearly unconscious or just not aware of the pain, but I didn't feel any pain. But people started running over and I heard the oohs and the ahs and all the concern. So they could start seeing what was happening. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to pause right there too, jump over mom, because this is where we actually started hearing about what was going on. I'm going to, you know, stay with where they were in, in Moab doing this. Back home, we all start getting texts randomly saying, dad was in an accident. He's okay, but he lost an eye. And you hear that the oohs and ahs, he was saying that the, uh, that some of the boys on the trip saw that it's because you hear, well, his eye popped out of his socket at least me, I don't know what you what you visualize, but it's not exactly what you think about in like a horror film or something where an eye is dangling <laughs> out by the optic nerve or something like that, right? It's it's a little bit different. It's different. I when I heard it, I thought that when they said his his eye is bad, something's bad with his eye, and they said it had popped out. So I envisioned it hanging out, but what had happened is he had hit so hard, and this is what the doctor in Moab thought happened he hit with such blunt force that it did it pushed the eye out of the eye socket so it's not hanging but it's like sticking way out and it, it does kind of look like a freddy krueger the picture we have of what happened but it, it, it just kind of scary. bulges out of its socket it yes. looks like you just see a little bit more of the eye but it's again it's nothing totally gruesome but we didn't know that at the time and I remember my younger brother, you were with him, and they started sending a text to the whole family saying, hey, this is going on, and we all start speculating wildly about what's happening. But at the time, it didn't seem as serious, right? We thought, no. well, he's with other people, and he's fine. He was with other people. He was coherent, although he doesn't remember all of it now. But he was talking. He was joking. Um, he... He was laughing with them. I think it maybe scared some of the boys a little bit when they saw their leader in that situation. But that's what made us feel like everything was okay, was that it didn't at that point seem life-threatening. Yeah. Okay, so then, so back, you're, you pop up is what I've heard from different people telling the story. A lot of times, you know, when you fall down or get hurt, you pop up before you realize you're in pain. Maybe you say, I'm okay, you dust it off, you think you're fine. You say you didn't. It didn't hurt necessarily too badly right then. 
I don't remember any pain right then, other than I knew there were some injuries because of the way people were starting to gather around me. I just, and I don't really remember any of this as much as just what people told me, but I remember laying there and them saying, okay, just lay still, we're going to take care of you. And the next thing I remember is them saying, okay, we're going to tighten you onto the gurney and get you into the ambulance. So I just had to, and I don't remember any of the details of that, and I don't remember any pain. I just remember they were going to take me into the ambulance, take me to the airport, and then fly me back up to Salt Lake to the University of Utah Hospital. But I didn't know all of that. I mean, it's just what I gathered from all the stories I heard afterwards. That's come together afterwards. But you were there, so you weren't necessarily in a remote place because the ambulance is able to get to you fairly quickly, yes. right? It didn't, that didn't take very long. No, it's just on the outskirts of Moab, really, so it was okay. reasonably close. And they took you to a uh, medical center in Moab first. Uh, you know, I don't know that for sure. I really don't remember whether we went to a medical center or whether we went straight to the airport. They took you to the hospital. Oh. And that's where they had the they helicopter. They took me to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to butt in, but they took him to the emergency room in the hospital so that the, well, the EMTs were with you the whole time, and then they got you to the hospital, and the, the doctors at the uh, regional hospital there took care of you, and we were fortunate that there wasn't an eye doctor there because they probably would have kept you in that small little regional hospital but because they knew they couldn't do anything for the eye they wanted to get you to a hospital that had an um, an eye doctor there and so that's when they decided that's where the lifelight came in right from that hospital they actually sent the helicopter from the university of utah hospital here in salt lake no, no. They, what they did is they they were going to send him to Grand Junction because they knew there was an eye doctor there. Because that's closer to that's Moab. That's closer to Moab, and they thought they just had to fix the eye. That's what they were thinking at the time. So they had called. Um, they had called me to get our insurance information, and to let me know what had happened. And I. It was lucky they called me because I said, don't take him there. If you're going to life flight him somewhere, you might as well life flight him up to Salt Lake because we have a great eye surgery place up there. And I just knew that. So I said, don't. Well, and, and that's where you live. And that's where I live. <laughs> <laughs> that's where we all live. So it would, have, it would have been easier. It's not that much further in the helicopter. But um, I kind of had to push on that to say do not send him to another smaller regional hospital get him back here where we can help okay and that'll be one of the things i think we'll want to circle back on because i think that was one of the few things you know when you're able to look back and see everything 2020 that that actually had a big impact on all of this but dad so at that point when do you really remember starting to that you knew what was going on when did you when do your memories pick back up again? Uh, I really don't remember any of the flight uh, or having any pain, quite honestly. The next thing I remember really is waking up in a hospital room. So I don't remember any of the landing, any of the flight, anybody there until I wake up and I'm basically in a hospital bed in Salt Lake City. That's about the next thing I can recall knowing for sure. Did you know how serious it was no, at that I, point No, I yet? really had no idea. I think I may have felt a little more pain there, but but even, again, of this whole interestingly unique experience, I, pain was never a big part of it. Now, I don't know whether that's because I'm afraid of pain and I put it out of my mind or whether I just didn't really feel it, but I remember the experiences. I just don't remember the pain. <laughs> Excuse me. It's okay. <laughs> well, and the amazing thing about it is they had not given him any pain medicine to this point. They got him on the flight because he was not complaining of pain. This is, And I get all this from the EMT that stayed by his side and contacted me after all the intense emergency was over. Um, he had gotten quite close to Gary on the flight chatting with him. So apparently Gary was alert and awake enough to talk to this EMT the whole way. He has no recollection of that. But he said it was when they got him up here to the University of Utah and the trauma unit, and they knew exactly what to do, and they could tell the signs that there were that there was a brain trauma, brain bleed going on at the time. But he said that's when they loaded him up on the pain medication. So it's pretty amazing that he had the accident, made it to the hospital, 
got on the helicopter, flew all that way, and has no recollection of any pain. Um, and then they, when they got him up here at the University of Utah, they loaded him up with pain meds. Hmm. Which I think that's one of my favorite parts of the story, too, because it shows, Dad, the type of person you are, because you don't have any recollection of this. You had no idea what was going on. And yet the EMT, all the people in the helicopter, the nurses, the doctors at the U all just said, he's just so friendly and courteous to us. And he's <laughs> he's worried about how we're doing. And he his eye is bulging out of his socket. I, I mean, you may not remember that, obviously, but that was something for me as your son, I always looked up to and thought that was a really cool thing to just show your true character really showed out during this incredible experience that you weren't angry or upset with anybody that you still were just as caring and loving as a person as you are. Well, thank you. I, um, I do remember one other thing that's kind of interesting. Uh, sometimes in our church, when we have accidents, we use uh, a special anointed oil to offer a, a blessing, a prayer on the person. And I remember when I was laying there on the rock in Moab, Someone just said, we should give him a blessing. Does anybody have any oil? Well, I had to put some oil in my pocket before the trip. So I casually reached into my pocket, pulled it out, and said, well, I've got some right here. <laughs> they took the oil, they anointed me, and they blessed me. And I'm, I don't know this for sure, but I'm, I'm thinking that they may have blessed me to be have a comfortable ride because I seem to have had that, and I don't remember any of this traumatic pain that they said I had. The, the, some of those people with me on the, on the flight, I remember afterwards them telling me that I was obviously in some pretty intense pain, but I don't remember that. Well, there's one first silver lining right there. Yeah. (laughs) Little things, but uh, led to you getting there. So did you know, they got to the hospital then, and again, that's where all of us in the family, we're starting to get information that we just, I feel like we were kind of waiting on pins and needles. He was, we didn't know when he was going to land, when the chopper was going to make it to the hospital, and was thinking it's just the eye, but then slowly started finding out, well, no, he's got this brain bleed going on. They might have even at one point... I remember thinking that there was more hemorrhaging and different things going on that they were worried about, saying, you know, there might be other blood on the brain or different injuries, maybe not even consistent with what just happened. You know, they ran tests and found that everything was fine for the most part. I mean, it's, that it wasn't any other serious thing, but it, it got, it felt like it escalated very quickly once he got to the hospital. Once he got to the hospital, it escalated because we were... We were all thinking it was the eye, and we were kind of mourning that he might lose that eye and not be able to see out of it, and and that was as much as we could comprehend at that time. Um, but I started to wonder when the helicopter landed. We watched the helicopter land, and they brought him in. We couldn't get to him, of course, and um, <clears throat> he was in there, and they they would not allow any of us to go in the room. Or see him and so we started realizing that there was there was more going on and then those of you who have ever gone through this may be acquainted with it but they always have a little room and a social worker that they kind of pull your family into to prepare you for the worst which that's when I think I started to get very nervous was when they pulled us all in that room and started telling us that there was um, brain hemorrhaging and I don't know if they told us this at the time or told us after, but 50% chance he would live or 50% chance he would not make it. And and I just remember the hush going over the room of this is far more serious than we had planned on dealing with today. <laughs> this was not our uh, pleasant thing for us to try and, and work through. So... There's, you know, it's kind of frustrating when there's nothing you can do, but you just sit and wait until they allow allow family to come back into the room. And that's where it seems like the first part of where life starts to seem a little bit more fragile, right? And I, more background information into your life, Dad, that your dad died when you were only 17. Yeah, he was 43. 43 was when he passed away. Father, yep. And his dad died... At when what he, age? When he was seven. So when my dad was seven, his father died. So we, we have not had a history of, of uh, dads living very long in our family. So that's, for your, for your point, to get to 
the age you're at now compared to what the men in the Stevens line had done for yeah. recent generations and almost... He's an old man. Every day I set a new record. You say you're playing with house money at this point, right? That, That's right. But for me, as someone who hadn't had something like that, you know, it, it, it definitely changes your perspective quite a bit and you start realizing the importance of things and the, the closeness of family and you, you just, you cherish every moment right then. Luckily... We know the outcome right now. We're sitting here together doing a podcast talking about this. And this is an outcome that a lot of people don't get to have, that you get to do these things more and and have these conversations and have more memories that you get to create after the fact. But I think that to that point, it just felt fragile, right? And that was the hush that That you described. And, And what's interesting for me as a wife and a mother was to be going through this and feeling the pain and the fear but then watching your children go through it and not being able to do anything to ease their pain and, and you know, sit there and, and watch them and, and look at their faces and the sadness and the helplessness. I mean, these are adult children. These aren't little children, but there's nothing as a mother you can do to help them through it. It's, it's kind of a helpless, a very frightening situation to be in. Yeah. And it felt like it kept going on because, you know, again, we thought, well, when are we going to get to see him? When are we going to get to be around him? And the tough part was then knowing that brain hemorrhaging that happened, they had to keep you in the intensive care unit, uh, the neural intensive care Neurological unit. Neurological intensive care unit again learning all these medical terms <laughs> NICU the NICU that this so this neural intensive care unit uh, you had to stay there for two full weeks right yes two weeks and and she made the comments about their concern for me I, again I didn't even remember any of that I was either still out of it or they were moving me to the room or whatever but I I recall when I finally did come to being in in a hospital bed being plugged in about 12 to about 12 cables and my concern was I need to go to the restroom here pretty quick. And, <laughs> and I, so I had no idea of the damage. Um, although I, I knew I had an eye situation, but I, I came to find out very quickly that the concern wasn't for the eye at all. The concern was for my, my head or my brain. So those two weeks were really dedicated to studying the brain injury rather than the eye. The eye was sort of bandaged up and left alone. And I, until f- some one finally explained to me, we're not concerned about the eye right now, we're concerned about monitoring your head. I didn't realize that, so I, when I got that explained to me, I finally felt much better about why I was all plugged in and why they were monitoring me so intensely. And we learned about the hierarchy of the hospital order too, right? There's a reason brain takes precedence, yeah. which is good, and we're glad that's the case, but it was no eye doctor is going to come and do any sort of um, intrusive examination or anything like that to really start finding out what was going to happen with the eye until we are absolutely certain that the brain is okay. Right. Which made it, you know, which is good now because that, again, that is in perspective and there is a good hierarchy for that. But I think that was tough because over the first week, at least, you did start to show progress and they started to realize, okay, the brain bleeds have subsided or at least they had to wait for the swelling to go down and it would all at least hold. There was no new damage. Is that correct? That's right. There was no, there was no, we were, we feel very blessed and that the doctors were pleasantly surprised that the bleeding stopped on its own as quickly as it did. Then we felt because we're, we're not, we don't go to doctors often. We, we pride ourselves in being active, healthy people. And I mean, we would maybe go in for a checkup once a year. That's it. So we were a little bit ignorant to a lot of the things that happened to us, but they were worried about, I guess, once the blood dries in the brain, in the brain, then it has the chance of smashing the veins in the brain, which causes stroke. Um, what's the other thing? It can cause a stroke immediately. And so they, they, for some reason, 14 days, that fear drops from like 90% that you could have a stroke to almost 1%. So we kept thinking, well, he's fine. We'll be out of here in a day or two when we need. they needed to watch him, which was a good thing with other things that had gone wrong. But they needed to watch him for a full two weeks in that 
neurological ICU. And that's probably where you now start remembering the recovery process after the fact. Do you remember much now about being in the hospital, or is that kind of a blur? Well, I remember that 14 days in in the same (laughs) hospital room seems like an eternity. I remember every day when I'd wake up, I'd think, oh, at least they moved me to a new room, only to be told, no, you're in the same room. But it looked different (laughs) to me every day. Uh, But, yeah, that was a long time, and I kind of wondered, too, there was no talk about the eye. It was all about monitoring the brain, and we'd have brain doctors come through and, you know, make a few comments or something. And but I was I learned quickly that that's what they were concerned about was the brain. And um, well, and that's also where we realized um, that his brain wasn't working normally. That's also where we realized that th- the thought process wasn't the same, and that his memory, what happened to him. One day, he wouldn't remember the next, or what happened an hour before, he had no idea. So he often would wake up um, thinking he was in a completely new place when he was in the same hospital. And he also had, um, not visions, but what do you call them? He, he would see Hallucinations. Things. Hallucinations. <laughs> he would have the strangest hallucinations, like it was snowing in the room, and he I would have snow on my hair, or... He would see buildings, or do you want to talk anything about well, those? Well, <laughs> I just remember that it looked to me like the ceiling of the hospital room had this really intricate design built into it, like hand-carved or something. Uh, that's just what my eyes were seeing, and that's what I perceived was the case. And it went into the curtains sometimes. It went into the <laughs> drawers and the other bits of furniture here and there. And I remember thinking, wow, this seems like a pretty fancy hospital. Which uh, we attributed to... Maybe all the drugs that they had him on. <laughs> yeah, could That's what been. we thought it was, was the drugs. But we found after he came home from the hospital that <clears throat> some of those still exist and we're still working on doctors and, and figuring out this amazing thing we call our brain. Yeah. But so the immediate concern and kind of the aftermath that came as a result was more about short-term memory then. It was the waking up. Yeah. that he didn't know where he was necessarily or thought something had changed. Yeah. Um, but your long-term memory actually seemed like it held up. It wasn't like you had forgotten things from your mm-hmm. past. I mean, you would talk about things from your childhood like yeah. it was still right there yesterday. And, and, and you know, people would come to visit me each day, and I would usually recognize who they were, I believe, didn't I? And um, Yes, but, you did. And I, But they might come the next day, and I wouldn't remember that they came the day before. So it was definitely a short-term memory thing, but people came, a lot of people came and visited me, and and uh, it was amazing to me that I could usually remember a name and who they were for the most part, but it seemed like I was always in a different room. And when they told me, you, we never moved you out of that room a single time, I was really amazed because I was sure I was in different ho- different hospital rooms each day. Well, I was one of those people that I think the short-term memory <laughs> affected me and my family. Were, we, we live in California, Everyone else here in the family is mostly in Salt Lake. And so we flew in during the first weekend, so a few days after all this happened, to came to see you. And it wasn't we didn't see you again then for a couple more weeks. When we came back, we said, do you remember us coming to see you in the hospital? You said, oh, no, you were there? <laughs> I think I did that to a lot of people. I just could not remember that they'd come. And I know we'd had good conversations when they were there, but I just it just left me, I guess. And so um, that's part of the... Well, and I stayed with him overnight and in the days because he would get so confused he needed some something so I stayed every day but he would always look around and go where'd you go where'd you go he never seemed to remember that I was there so it was it was really fleeting his memory Mm -hmm. short-term memory yeah absolutely was there anything you liked about being in the hospital for that long oh yeah (laughs) what was there (laughs) they had the best nurses (laughs) Well, the nurses were very nice. I, I do remember I'd get excited for meals. Um, so you like hospital food? Well, yeah. looking back... Or you I, just like food? I, I, just, I do appreciate food in general. But after I'd eat the food, and it was hospital food, that which is pretty standard hospital food, but I do remember then they'd have a, some little piece of white cake with white frosting, and I used to get so excited. Hey, there's the good <laughs> stuff waiting for me at the end of the meal, which probably wasn't anything great when it comes to cake, but I always thought, oh, boy... So I was probably pretty messed up, but... Well, maybe after something like that, an experience or trauma like this, you really do start to appreciate the little things. Yeah, I did. I think I appreciated every meal, and I ate probably just about all He had a nurse that came every day with the ultrasound and would massage his head, and and he loved loved those 
brain scans that they did with the ultrasound. And I do remember there was a there was a lady who would come and, get, and shave me every every morning, which I liked too. <laughs> I just loved having somebody else shave me, and I didn't have to worry about it. So, so are you are you saying your wife doesn't still? No. Shave you in the morning? No, no, that no. ended? I don't believe she ever had. I don't do the head massages, and I don't shave him. <laughs> but there were a few fond memories like that of the hospital. I'll tell you one quick experience that I would have nearly every night, because I was so plugged in with so many wires, I really couldn't get out of bed even if I wanted to, but I, I would have to go uh, to the bathroom every night at least once or twice. So I would go ahead and try to get up, and they kept saying, just lay still and ring your, your bed bell, and we'll come and help you out. But I would always think, no, I don't want to bother them. I'll just try to get out of bed myself. And every time I did, I'd set off an alarm, and they'd run in, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I'd say, nothing's wrong. I just have to go the, to the bathroom. And then they'd say, well, you can't do that yourself. And I'd say, I know. I just didn't want to bother you. No, you bother us. You bother us. And I remember that um, I just I felt so silly having to do that every night, but I just thought, you know, it's getting down to whether I just got to get to the bathroom or I'm going to you know, wet my nightgown here. In it. Yeah. So then it was after the two weeks, everything with the brain started to feel, the doctors were saying everything was healing fine and going according to plan, right? So there's no yeah. real need to panic. That doesn't mean everything's going to be fine. And it doesn't do oh. it because I believe if I remember hearing the doctor say this correctly was that for a trauma of this magnitude, it can take actually up to six months till you start feeling totally back to normal. Is that accurate or what? Actually, it's a year. A year. Now, it's a year, and he's had to go through, uh, we had a lot of doctor visits, physical therapy visits, occupational therapy visits, um, and like I said, there's still some brain problems that he'll, he'll have to see, talk to an eye brain specialist this month so they can figure out a few things that are going on. I mean, the, the beauty of it is that his personality is still here, and um, other than short-term memory and a few uh, things he can't do that he used to, he is back to normal, mostly. It's just the short-term memory and, and confusion a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not 100%, but we're only into it five months now, so we still got seven more months. <laughs> yeah. So we, at this point then, you get out of the the neural ICU and that's when we're finally able then to turn the focus back to the eye because the brain is stabilized. And this was the part, I think during all that, you'd kind of held out hope that, well, maybe there was still something salvageable with the eye. They were waiting for the swelling to come down um, so they could get in there and look at that. But what was that like then going through and learning about the eye process? Well, yeah, I, I kept harboring hopes that when the when the brain time was passed that They'd get back to the eye, and they'd discover that the eye would work again. But when we finally went to see kind of the expert there, and then we went to another expert, both of them gave us their same opinion that I don't think you'll ever see out of that eye again. And that was a bit of a, a hard one to handle. It was really hard because we had, we had both felt strongly that he was going to heal 100%. And I think now we, we do feel like he's healed, and we even like to look at it like it's 100%. He's not the same as he was. Not everything's the same. We've had to adapt a little bit, but he has healed much, much better than they, they thought he would. What's that like to be sitting there and have them tell you the eyes not salvageable at all at this point? And you're, you, you know, you kept thinking it's like, like if you, what I had done through this whole process, I'll say it when we first heard there was an eye injury and some of my other siblings, we all admitted this to each other after the fact, we started trying to do regular day activities by holding one hand covering an eye to see <laughs> what it would be like to live with only one eye vision. You kept hoping it was going to come back, and then they finally tell you, and I believe the word they used in the, the eye doctor was the eye was pulverized yeah. when they finally got in to look at it and say, okay, this thing you will never see again. Yeah. What is that like to have someone tell you that, that you're only going to have vision well, in one eye? Because they hadn't addressed the eye issue for much of that time. I, I guess I was harboring this hope that it'll, it'll, they'll, they'll get in there and they'll realize, oh, yeah, this eye has got some life left to it. It, it, was, it was kind of tough to handle the fact that they said, no, I, we doubt you'll ever see out of that eye again. Um, the, the toughest part has been each day... Getting used to it. Each day adjusting to 
I think you have to mourn it. I think it's almost like the death of something close to you because you have to mourn the fact that that part is changed. You won't ever have that sight back in that eye. And and the the occupational therapist was really good about that. She said, you need to go ahead and feel bad about this. Let yourself feel for this. Let yourself feel that you're not going to be the same as you always have been. So I'm, I just remember I had to do my own mourning and he had to do his. And I think, you know, when we got to the doctor, the doctor was very good at letting us take our time. He didn't push us into the surgery of, of taking the eye out. He waited until we were both to the point where we realized he's not going to see out of this eye again. So it, it's just, it's an interesting process I think you have to go through. And he had to go through it on his and I had to go through it on mine. And then you kind of support each other when you kind of have a little bit of a setback on that. I'll, I'll share something with you, Scott. I remember that um, as grow, growing up and during my adult life, I always had uh, one eye that was better than the other eye. And my, my lesser eye, we kind of lovingly referred to as my stink eye. Because whenever I'd go out in the, in the sun or somewhere bright, I would close that eye a bit to shield it from the sun, and I'd use my other eye mostly. Well, it was my stink eye that I'm left with, which was clearly not the better eye. So I'm, I'm trying to do all living all my life with a stink eye rather than even a, <laughs> even a good eye. And, and I don't know how real that is. But that's how I feel is that I've really got a, a deficient eye with the one that's left. But they say it'll it'll grow and progress and get better as I get used to this whole thing. So you say, did, what what is weaker about it, would you say? Well, I don't... Um, Colors and it, focus it, and it, stuff? Or? It can't handle the bright lights. For example, if I'm out there and it's sunny, I have to have sunglasses on. Even some days when it's cloudy, but there's snow on the ground, all that whiteness just is too much for it to handle. I just can't take that over-stimulation. So I have to be careful as to you know what kind of glasses I'm wearing when I go out, and and it's not as crisp and clear. I don't see any of the detail that I used to see in life. I mean, I could I used to walk around the house and I could spot every imperfection in my walls or a spider web way up in the ceiling in the corner, and I don't see any of that anymore. Well, I wish you would have uh, maybe lost this eye earlier when I was a boy making dents in the wall. <laughs> uh, yep, that I know that you're absolutely right. I. I just have had to learn with le- learn to live with less perfection than I did before, and that's been a bit of a challenge. And even but. just being in the doctor's office the other day, the eye doctor, his eye has improved. He really? may not he may not notice it as much because he's living with it, but it, the the vision is getting stronger in that other eye. Yeah. So then you had to make that decision, um, and this was just within the last few months of, okay, the eye's not going to be healed. What were your options? What what can you do with that? Well, there really weren't a lot of options. They they create a, a fake eye, which is really a kind of a, a glass or a plastic little piece that you put on the old eyeball that's actually still inside, attached to the muscles. And then once that little eye is painted and, and made to look just like the the other eye, so that you look like you have a match set, then they stick it in there and suction sort of holds it in place, just like a, a regular eye contact would have. So that's what they've done. They've built this... Um, this little artificial eye, and it sits in there. And, and so when I move and, and make, make the eyes look like they're going together, there's some movement. So unless someone really looked closely, they, they would think I have two good eyes. So they match that eye They ma- yeah, to, they, to look just like just the real like one. The, the, yeah, right, the they real call one. him an artiste because he sits and paints. He takes pictures of the eyes and looks at the eyes, and then he paints the eye just like the other eye. And it, it, looks, it looks very, very good. So this was a misconception I had, and I think most people have. And actually, I feel like the question when people find out that this happened to you, it seems like most people want to know about the glass eye. And yeah. So this it's it's called a glass eye, but it's not exactly what you think. It's not what they show you in the movies. If you ever saw the movie Captain Ron, for example, and he, <laughs> his glass eye kept popping out and rolling around like a marble, that's yeah. not exactly what a glass eye is. And we all had to learn that. This was new information to us. We kept thinking they were going to put something in it. Yes, well, he, as, as did I. He had what they call an evisceration of his eye. So they didn't take the whole eye out because they wanted the muscles in there to be able to move the eye. So they kind of, I don't think it's called skimming, but they take off that top part that they said was pulverized. Mm-hmm. They clean that off, and then you have to wait a couple of months while that heals. Then you visit this ocularist, the artiste eye doctor, and they fix this eye and paint it, 
and then they he has it he also has taken a mold of his eye so that that fits right on the eye and he actually suction cup it into the eye so it kind of grasps on and then you have about a two to three week period where your what's the remaining of your eyeball with the muscles um, learns to move that eye around so that's where we are right now is it's it's just adapting to his his eye because you've had this this glass eye in now for how long a couple of weeks two yeah, weeks maybe almost two weeks so you're still getting used to having that you don't actually notice a difference yourself no i don't i still just know i everything all my sight comes from one eye but again it doesn't cause me any real major discomfort at all it's just i can tell that i can't see out of it and sometimes if it's <laughs> off center it'll feel just a little bit haywire but but it's not what i would call major pain at all it just minor discomfort at the, at the worst. So a way to compare it almost is it's like a contact lens. Yeah. It's sitting on top of it, your eye. It's not as big as a contact. Or no, it's oh, bigger it's than a contact lens. Yeah. It's not that small, but it's a very similar concept. And that's, and I didn't realize that until I saw him start to build it, that that's what it was. But yeah, it's not like an eye, a, a whole eyeball that comes in and out at all. But it will, that's the point, it'll get better with it. And it's doing it now. It actually tracks with the other eyeball yeah, a little yep. bit. It may never be 100% moving around like the other one, but... As, as, as long as people are just having a conversation with you, they may not notice. Yeah, that's, I think that's a fair way to... And yeah. this was this was something I noticed in telling people this story as well, that you start to realize when you tell people, well, he's got a glass eye now, this becomes one of those things where suddenly everybody else you know starts to have a connection to somebody with a glass <laughs> oh, eye. Yes. You say, oh yeah, my uncle had a glass eye, this person had a glass eye. And you go, well, I had no idea. You never knew any of these people before. So yep. they're out there among us living normal, healthy, everyday lives. Everybody has a, a, an uncle, a brother, a sister, a dog that has a, a, you know, a fake eye. It's funny how many people have those. And I talk, I've talked to several people who have them who say, I, yeah, I'm getting along pretty well. So I do have to believe that with time... I'll start to, to see and be able to get along much better than I am now. But it's a bit of a challenge still, and yeah. I just have to be patient. It has helped teach me patience more than anything. What do you think now is the things, as you go about trying to get back to your everyday life and doing the things the way you used to, is what you have the hardest time doing? I think it's still the toughest thing for me is just not seeing things exactly as I used to see them, as clearly I mean, I used to walk around the house and notice every little dent in the wall and every little thing that needed to be repainted and, and just things like that. And I, I just simply don't see those things anymore, which I guess maybe in the long run will be better for me, but it, it's tough not to see as well as I used to see. I just uh, have to realize that's the best I'm going to have for a while and, and learn to deal with it. Are you able to do everything like you used to? No, not everything. Not I mean, yet. Uh, yeah, I... I uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to play catch with a baseball, for example. I'm afraid I, I just don't have the perspective of the ball coming and which angles and probably hit me in the face. And so, But I can do a lot of things still reasonably well. I haven't dri- driven much, but I should be able to drive in the future, hopefully. So there's a, there'll be things coming every day that I'll be able to get back to somewhat of a normality, but yeah. it's, it's kind of a slow process. We've slowly, we've done a little biking. Yeah, we've You have gotten back on a bike. We've yeah. gotten back on a bike. And that's been a lot of fun. We wanted to make sure that I had balance, which... That's that's been that's a challenge really at good, first, but it's it's come along pretty well. And we just tried skiing a, a little bit the last couple of weeks, so it's kind of fun to have these things come back. Yeah, absolutely. So it obviously is it's a different change, and for you, mom, well, really for both of you, this changed both of your lives because now you're a lot more dependent on each other than you had to be before. I mean, you'd gone out and live, you'd been married for a long time now. And you lived together for a long time, but you knew your boundaries. But now it's like you've been put together and that you're kind of attached at the hip again. How has that made things different for you? I'll tell you what's funny. Sometimes we'll go together to run errands and we may be in a store shopping and she'll go off to get something and all of a sudden I'll look around and I don't see her. And I find myself just panicking just a little like, oh, she's forgotten about me. I'm stuck here. And I don't kind of want to wander off on my own, so I'll try to call her right away to just to establish contact. And it seems kind of silly for someone my age to worry about that. But, you know, I guess I still have this fear of being alone somewhere and not being able to get myself out of that situation. So it's it's got a few challenges. But, yeah, we spend a lot of time together because she does all the driving. It's definitely changed our life in that, he can't he can't get in the car and go do the things he used to do if he wants to go do something i need to drive him or 
if I need to go do something, I can't, I can't leave him stuck at home alone all day. So it's made, we've had to make major adjustments in our life. And at first it's, it's kind of overwhelming, but you get used to it. You adapt and, um, his, he, you know, it's exciting when he can do some of this stuff again. I mean, when we got him on that bike, because his balance was off pretty bad at the start. And I wondered if he'd ever be able to do any of these things we like to do. And so uh, to watch him be able to get on that bike and just ride was really exciting. I mean, almost like when you have your kid ride his bike for the first time and and watching him be able to ski and balance. And, you know, I mean, you still have to make adjustments. And it's not the same, but, um, you know, it's just step by step. So as you start to look back now, I mean, you're still in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. You're not out. You're still learning how to cope and adapt with this. But And you've mentioned some of these things to me before, but I'm curious, what are the things you've already noticed that you can find the good in through this whole process? What are the things that you've learned already and been grateful for having gone through something like this? One thing I recall pretty vividly was how many people shared concerns uh, with me. Uh, of you know they'd w- send me a little note to say we wish you the best to get well soon and they'd bring food but food by leave us meals I mean much more concern from others than I ever expected <laughs> he he did I I remember him making the comment so many times I, I I didn't know I had this many friends or I didn't know people cared that much about me which was very touching to see just to watch him to realize how much people were there for him and and how much they did love him and and their offers of help the the food like he mentioned the concern and what's been especially touching is to watch those people that you know you're flooded with people all at once but the people that have really stayed in touch with him over the months to to wanting to see how he's progressing how he's doing and what they can still help with that's that's very sweet even a few friends from clear across the country have have called or texted or emailed and, and said hey i heard about your accident how you doing and, and things like that just really say a lot mm-hmm. well that's it's something we've already noticed as we've been doing these podcasts and in our first episode we told the story of, of my friend jeff and how he passed away and then the second episode with paul and april moyle both of those people talked about how it was it really brought people together and it, 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 in the sad case where, you know, somewhere we lost Jeff, that was a time where a lot of people just said, you know, I wish I could talk to him one more time or go through something like, and, and say something to him again. And a case like this, it's, it got scary for a little while and we weren't sure to what you said was a 50, 50 chance at one point. We are one of the lucky ones that you are still here. You're without an eye. Yes. Granted. (laughs) But we still get to have you here. And I think that you look at all these people in your life that get to really examine that and say, you know, I just, I can't imagine what I would do if you weren't here. And it lets you really gain appreciation for the people that care most about you in your life, I think is a unique perspective. Yeah, that's so true. It makes you, I'm much more grateful than I was before and appreciative of my friends. And my family. I want to... You told me at one point you actually didn't remember saying this to me as well. But I want to touch on another thing you've said that was something that you feel like you're actually very grateful for in this point. And you, you had said to me that this actually had a really profound impact on some of these boys, some of these young men that you were on this um, outing with. You said to me... That if you had known of the profound impact that it would have on them, having gone through all this, that you would gladly lose an eye all over again. You would be basically willing to go back through this entire trauma, giving up half your vision, just to know of the impact that it would have on these boys. Now, and maybe you want to give some context to that, because you've seen in the church, I mean, these are teenage boys that you're working with who teenage boys just don't really ever care that much about anything. You remember, I was one of your teenage boys at one point, obviously. 
you go through these times where they're just kind of apathetic towards life in general and it's hard to get them to care about anything. But you noticed a change that they were able to see and gain a power of an understanding of how important prayer was to watch you go through a miracle where they thought they would lose you and you pulled through. So from a faith perspective, a prayer perspective, something that this invaluable experience that they were able to gain just from doing that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, uh, you know, you just never know. But but when some of the boys would tell me that they'd been thinking or praying about me and asking for the blessings to to uh, be showered upon me, it was very touching. One of the hardest things was right after the accident, the boys come back from Moab, and you know they're they're worried because they don't know what's going on. We've tried to tell them everything but then we didn't know everything and at the hospital and when you're in the NICU no one's allowed in and all these boys wanted they would come out to the waiting room and just wait to get a chance to come in to see him and you know they wouldn't they wouldn't let him in for quite a while but it was very sweet because the boys would either send texts or their parents would telling me how a lot of the boys had an idea that they wanted to, which is in our church, a fast where you go without food for someone and have a group prayer. And this went on for weeks. Not that they didn't just eat all that time, but they would, you know, each one would be individually touched on their own of, I want, we want to do something for him. They had so much compassion and love that, um, that it was their own idea, not their parents. It was their idea. And, and it, it was it was a good thing i think for boys of that age to be faced with what life really what things that happen really in life mm-hmm. yeah it was a it's been a really positive experience that way to you know to get fairly close to some of these boys and and um, get to know them better and have them express their appreciation to me as one of their leaders so, it, it, I mean, it's tough to say if I'd really do it again, but I think I would think awfully hard about doing it again if it, as long as it helped them yeah. in some way. Yeah. Well, and that's something I've, as I've been analyzing all of this and thinking about it over the last few months since it happened, what is, you know, what is this, can we take away from this? What is the main points to learn from this? And I've often thought, and I'm curious to hear what you guys think about this, that sometimes maybe we go through things and it's really not even for our own good or our own benefit, that maybe we go through things purely for the sake of other people so that they can learn, they can grow, they can change their perspective about it. I'm curious to hear what you think of that. Well, I, I think that's so true. And, and, you know, you never know right now how much good you're doing, but if it does some good for others, I think that's that's a chance it's often worth taking. And, um, and again, it's, it's renewed some of my friendships with people I hadn't spoken to in months or maybe even years. And again, if it, if it some way helps them in their life some way, then that's sort of what life's all about. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think even you said that right after the accident happened, that you'd give up an eye again if it helped any of those boys. If it changed their life somehow, some way, um, I think one of our kids said, "Well, Dad, you've had that eye for sixty-five years anyway, so <laughs> you had a good run." <laughs> if it can change someone's life, then you know, so be it. Yeah. Well, what do you think then? Is 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 there one major thing? Do you have a a, a single silver lining or or several silver linings that you would pull from this now as you're looking back at it as a as a whole picture? Well, it's probably taught me patience better than anything else would have taught me patience. It's taught us both how to adapt. And it, I mean, anytime you go through an experience like this, it's humbling. It makes you appreciate, you know, what you do have and, and the good people around you. And, and I, I don't know, it makes, it makes me see a bigger picture. It makes me realize that the little things that bother me every day or it makes us closer in our marriage. It makes us appreciate each other so much more. And, and 
hopefully it creates gentler, kinder feelings from from both of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll have to echo that. You know, to have a spouse that will accompany me anywhere without complaining. Well, let's not say I don't complain sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 tough to say it, it's worth it, but it's it's been really mostly very positive when you take the time to really think about it and and weigh out the effects it's been uh, it's been okay because we're going to get through it mm-hmm. i don't think anything that happens to you in life that's difficult you would ever choose or even suspect that that's what lies ahead but i think really you just have to go with it whatever happens and and try to make the best out of it I think that's you have another other choice. If you if you mourn it for too too much, it it ruins your soul. So you know we we make a lot of eye jokes, <laughs> one eye pirate jokes. <laughs> um, but it's it's strengthened us both. And there were a lot of a lot of kids in different situations that thought your eye patch. You had for a little while were pretty, <laughs> pretty cool. cool. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, I sometimes almost enjoyed having when I darkened one of the lenses of my glasses, and that was was in place of the eye patch. I did that because I thought, well, now people will know that I'm not quite whole yet. And now that I've taken that off, I think, oh, maybe they're going to mistakenly think I'm okay because I'm not totally okay yet, but I'm coming. <laughs> I'm getting there. But, you know, it's always nice to have an excuse as to why you're not completely perfect because... You've either had a head trauma or you lost an eye, and so I was using that as a good excuse. But um, you know, things are really things. We have a pretty good life, and we're grateful for so much. Well, I did see you. You do have that handicap parking pass now, <laughs> <laughs> and that's valuable. I'll tell you, that's that is a pretty valuable little thing to have. I don't know if I'm willing to give up an eyeball for it, but it, uh, <laughs> it can be a good thing, especially in California. Um, the one other thing I'll share is a little piece of advice, Dad, that you say to me all the time and you say to all of your kids all the time. Life is rough and then you die. We go through things and it's not always fair and it's not always great and then that's it and that's the end. And we, you know, we joke, it's more of a joke than a serious mantra. (laughs) But you look at something like this and it's, it's a little eyeball, one little eyeball. You think, you know, how big of a deal really is that? And you don't really, really know fully until you lose it. Yeah. You know, you maybe don't know how great something is until it's gone. Yeah, that's so true. But I think, do you, do you stop now and appreciate some of the little things that you didn't even realize you were taking for granted with your vision and stuff? Does it change your perspective in that sense? I think it does, and I think it will continue to be that way for some time to come because you just learn something every day. and you, you realize, again, what is important so yeah, I, I uh, I'm grateful for all the good that it has brought. Yeah, and that's a, a unique perspective right there. Is there anything else you guys think that that other people could benefit from hearing? A, a story I would like, like this? to uh, thank all of the medical care we had. I know it's their jobs and and they work hard at it, but I frankly was pleasantly surprised at the love and concern as I watched his nurses and his therapists help us out and and any time that I may not have um, been concerned with what was going on they were there they were always there to make sure that he felt good about things and that he realized that he was doing good and and that he would conquer this. That I've I've been very very appreciative of the healthcare people that have have been on his case. They've been wonderful. Yeah, what a great thing. So again, I I want to stress and emphasize you you'll you will have noticed throughout this whole conversation we've been having, especially my mom because she is with my dad, you know, pretty much twenty four seven these days. Uh, she knows when he you heard him break down a few times here. Um, and it's, it's something we're dealing with and, and she thinks it's funny and we think it's all funny because that's how we deal with it. Um, and again, that's not meant to be, uh, hopefully that's not offensive to anybody. And it's struggling with something similar along these lines at all, but we do have such a, a new found love and perspective for going through something like this. And again, this, I think sums up a lot of what 
this whole podcast is is about and that you can find good in all the bad stuff that happens to you even if it's not for you if it's for somebody else that is what the silver linings podcast is all about um so thanks to both of you for coming on the podcast thanks to both of you for being the wonderful people that you are for raising me and us of the rest of my siblings the way you did and for being um the the source of information inspiration to everybody that knows you i hope that hearing this story will help them and do that so thank you for coming glad to be part of it thank you i talk to my parents all the time but it's not every day you get to have them as guests in more of a formal setting like a podcast i was able to learn a lot about both of them during this process and i'm grateful for that we've got a lot more in store for you here on the podcast as well over the next few weeks So please subscribe if you haven't already and continue to share it with others. We can always use ratings and reviews on iTunes to help spread the word as well. If you haven't as well, you can follow us on Instagram at Silver Linings Podcast. Just like we've done for some of the past episodes, we're going to continue to post pictures, in this case, of my dad's new eye and things like that. So if you want to see some of that, you can follow us there. We've also had a lot of you reach out and share suggestions for future guests. So thank you for those that have done that, and please continue to do so. You can share on social media or at our website at silverliningspod.com. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening, and talk soon.